I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. On this podcast, rather than reviewing movies, two thumbs up, two thumbs down, loved it or hated it, we look at them in terms of what we can learn from them as screenwriters. We look at good movies, bad movies, movies that we loved, and movies that we hated. This podcast is offered absolutely free and with no outside advertising. So if you like what you hear, please help us reach our goal of 10,000 listeners by subscribing to us on iTunes and writing us a review. You can find a link to do so at writeyourscreenplay.com slash podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about Atomic Blonde by Kurt Johnstadt. And I'd like to start this script analysis by talking about the way that I saw Atomic Blonde, because this was actually my first experience with 4DX. I went to a 915 screening, and I'm wondering, why am I spending $28 on this screening? But it was the only screening I could make. And so I show up, and I have no idea what to expect. And it's not until I sit down that I realize that the seats are on a platform that moves and there are fans and lightning effects. And when it rains in the movie, it sprays water on you. And there are little airbursts that hit you every time a gun goes off. And the seat will shake you or kick you in the back when a fight scene's happening. And basically, this is the worst and most distracting way that I have ever seen a film. Rather than sucking you into the film, it actually shakes you out of it. It reminds you that you are seeing a movie, that you aren't experiencing something real. And I'm not telling you this to bitch about 4DX, even though I think 4DX is a total nightmare. I'm telling you this because oftentimes as screenwriters, we make the mistake of inadvertently doing 4DX in our own screenplays. Rather than simply telling the story we want to tell, simply pulling our audiences into our story in an organic way, we get so obsessed with all the bells and whistles that we end up distracting our audience from what makes our screenplay powerful. We get so obsessed with all the things that are supposed to make it commercial that instead of pulling our audience into the movie, instead of augmenting their experience, all those bells and whistles end up distracting, taking them out of the movie, shaking them out of the reality of the film. If you've taken my classes, you've heard me talk at length about the idea of screenplay formatting as a way of hypnotizing the reader. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is to use formatting to capture the visual eye of the reader, whether they're creative or not, to allow our movies to play in the little movie screen of their mind with no creativity required from them. And bad screenplay formatting happens when we fail to do that, when we either require the reader to supply their own creativity in order to make our scenes cool in their head, or when we start shaking them with improper rhythm or with overly technical scene headings or with things that they can't see or with dense action or with images that aren't specific, that don't play out exactly the way that we see them in the movie screen in our mind. Sometimes our action, the way we put it on the screen, the way we write our dialogue can be like those annoying jets of water and those annoying sprays of air and the shaking of the seats. They can shake us out of this world that we want to experience. So we have spoken at length about the idea of how sometimes our formatting can become our 4DX, can become the thing that is supposed to augment, but instead shakes us out of the experience of the movie. What we haven't talked about as much is the way that sometimes our ambition, our impulse to complicate what could be a beautiful and simple experience can shake our audience out of what could be a really great story. And for me, this is very much the experience of Atomic Blonde. Atomic Blonde wants to be a Quentin Tarantino movie, and there is no doubt that to the extent that Atomic Blonde succeeds, 
it succeeds because of its extraordinary fight sequences. Whatever the flaws of the film, and there are many, those fight sequences are really impressive on a number of levels. The first is that this writer is deeply aware that guns are no fun. Often, what happens in action movies is that the bad guys can't shoot and the good guys can. Often what happens in action movies is that the good guys are total badass characters and the best fighters and have the best skills and are total superheroes and the bad guys are a bunch of idiots who can't really do anything well. Atomic Blonde succeeds in the same way that Iron Man succeeds. Atomic Blonde and Iron Man both succeed because they realize that guns are no fun, just like Iron Man suits are no fun. If Iron Man is going to work, you've got to get him out of the suit. And if Atomic Blonde is going to work, you've got to get the guns out of the hands of both the good guys and the bad guys. Because the guns are just too darn easy to use. They're just too darn easy to kill with if they're used properly. Exciting action sequences don't come from having the all-powerful weapon. They come from having the challenging weapon, having the knife, having the high heel, having the hand-to-hand combat, having the object that isn't meant to be fought with. So if you want to write a great action sequence, just like Atomic Blonde, you've got to make the most of every location and every object inside of that location. Look at the location of your scene and ask yourself, what are all the objects that are available to you? What are all the objects that have never before been used in a fight sequence? And how can you use those objects in the wrong way? How can you surprise the expectations of the characters? How can you force the character to show who they are, to show their own ingenuity, to show their own badassedness? You almost need to think of all these challenging locations like a video game set where each location comes with its own unique challenges, own unique pitfalls, many, many exciting ways to die, and where everything is either an aid or an obstacle to the character getting what they want, where every object gets used in the wrong way in order to create the most exciting action sequences possible. So despite its many flaws, there's a lot that we can learn from Atomic Blonde when it comes to writing action, when it comes to the specificity of our action. And when it comes to this very important concept, don't let your action be about good guys kicking bad guy ass. Get the guns out of their hands. Get them out of the all-powerful suits. Don't make your action about good guys who can shoot and bad guys who can't. Make it about good guys and bad guys who are both really good at their jobs, who are equally matched, and who are both fighting with everything that they've got. Make it about using the wrong weapons in the wrong way, not the right weapons in the right one. The other thing that Atomic Blonde does really well in its action sequences is that Atomic Blonde allows the fighting to hurt. We realize this is going to happen from the first time we see Charlize Theron's character, Lorraine Broughton. The first time we meet her, she is literally covered from head to toe in black and blue marks. We have a beautiful image of Charlize Theron naked, bruised, covered in her bathtub. And like all the images in Atomic Blonde, this image is gorgeous. The direction by David Leitch from a visual perspective is absolutely gorgeous. The direction from a character perspective, I have some concerns about. But the direction for making every shot beautiful, just the way you want to make every shot beautiful in your script, is quite impressive. So we have this first image of Charlize Theron naked in a bathtub. She's literally black and blue from head to toe. She looks like she's just been in the fight of a lifetime. And this is not usually the way we get to see our action heroes. We don't usually get to see the aftermath. 
And that's how this first image establishes a rule for how those action sequences, all those fight sequences are going to work. It establishes a rule that the punches are going to hurt. The battles are going to hurt. This isn't going to be the A-team. This isn't going to be a battle or a fight sequence without consequence. We're going to allow the punches to land. One of the best fight sequences in Atomic Blonde happens between Charlize Theron and the most baddie bad, bad looking bad guy, German Stasi agent that she squares off with. There's a point during the fight where both of them are so tired from beating each other that they can both barely stand, where they're basically stumbling towards each other, trying desperately to find the will to walk, much less to actually fight. This is something that we haven't seen in a lot of action movies those fight sequences that actually hurt, those fight sequences with consequence. So on this level, Atomic Blonde is unusually successful. And yet, the experience of watching Atomic Blonde is emotionally kind of soulless. The experience of watching Atomic Blonde leaves you feeling really flat. And you can feel that this isn't what the writer's trying to do. What it feels like the writer is trying to do, what it feels like the director is trying to do, And if you've seen the trailer, which is spectacular, what the trailer is trying to do is to try to create that kind of Quentin Tarantino action movie feeling, that kind of tongue-in-cheek, super badass, turn-up-the-volume, almost expressionistic take on action, where it's a total joyride and a total romp watching the extreme violence. But that isn't the experience that we have watching this film. We don't have the Quentin Tarantino fun. In fact, at least from my perspective... This movie isn't much fun at all. And part of that's because despite the wonderful staging and beautiful imagery of those action sequences, Atomic Blonde is actually taking itself very, very seriously. The film is taking itself so seriously, it's so overly beautiful and it's so overly complicated that it's hard to just enjoy the romp. Atomic Blonde is trying to make a movie about deceiving the deceiver, and the writer, Kurt Johnstad, goes to really great lengths to try to lay in that theme, even going as far as quoting Machiavelli. The concept of a world where everyone betrays everyone is potentially a lot of fun. But in Atomic Blonde, from a tonal perspective, it doesn't actually play out in a fun way. It plays out in a very serious way. And what leads to that seriousness is the complication, and that complication exists for a couple of different reasons. The first is that the plot is so convoluted that it's hard to understand what the characters are actually trying to do. And this is something that happens all the time when you're trying too hard to set up a trick ending. Now, don't get me wrong, I love trick endings, but as I've talked about in several recent podcasts, including my podcast on Alien Covenant... When the trick ending becomes the whole point, it can really cause a lot of problems in your script. Atomic Blonde, for me, is one of the films in recent memory that most suffers from the trick ending problem. The writer is trying to set up the trick ending, which I'm not going to give you here, but which, quite frankly, you know is coming from the moment you hear Deceive the Deceiver and realize you're in a spy movie and you don't know the identity of the person Charlize Theron is chasing. But in the process of setting up this totally predictable trick ending, the movie twists itself in so many knots that it fails to deliver on its own premise. So why does this happen? It happens for a couple of reasons. Number one, they're trying to hold off on this trick ending so they aren't going to give you all the information. So that creates a certain amount of complication 
where they need lots of different layers to make sure you're confused so that you won't predict the thing that you've already predicted. So that's number one. Number two, they're spending a lot of time setting up a complicated relationship between Charlize Theron's and John Goodman's characters. And of course, that relationship ends up having a little trick to it as well that you also see coming from the very beginning. So the movie spends a tremendous amount of time setting up that complication. In fact, the movie is framed almost exactly like True Detective in that we have an interview taking place in the present and we have a story taking place in the past. And there's a difference between Charlize Theron of the present and Charlize Theron of the past. And there's a complicated relationship between her and the people interrogating her that we aren't exactly sure about. This is the structure of True Detective and the writers are trying to do a True Detective with a Quentin Tarantino mashup with a little bit of the usual suspects on the side. And this is the place that so many writers start. It's this meets this, it's this meets that. And unfortunately, when you start that way, you often end up with very disconnected writing. Now, I haven't read the graphic novel that this is based on, so there is certainly a potential that I've missed that it's possible that this was developed from a graphic novel that had the same setup. So I'm not trying to say that Atomic Blonde is necessarily derivative. I don't have enough information to say that. But what I am saying is that if as a writer you start from a derivative place, if you start as a writer going, it's this meets this or it's this meets that, what you miss out on is the real connection in you that's going to make the story exciting. What piece of you are you trying to explore in this character? And the truth is, Charlize Theron's character should be a really interesting one. She's a spy who may be falling in love with another woman or maybe using her. She has secrets for sure. She is tough as hell. She's a person who rarely tells the truth but has a tell when she does. She's a nice, complicated character, and that character should be a ton of fun to follow. And ultimately, her journey is trying to tie to a theme about Machiavellianism. It's trying to tie to a theme about the joy of deceiving a deceiver. And so the film is trying to find joy in deceiving the audience. But the film fails to recognize what is it really about in the writer? What is it really about in Charlize Theron's character? There's a potential in Atomic Blonde for a really beautiful journey. There's a potential here to allow Charlize Theron's character, Lorraine, to potentially fall in love with Sofia Boutella's character. There's an opportunity to develop a real love story. There's an opportunity to develop the Charlize Theron character to a place where she has to make a choice between love and deception. To develop a character to a place where she has to learn what it is to tell the truth or choose to fail to tell the truth and suffer from telling the truth or suffer from failing to do so. There's a potential complicated relationship with the John Goodman character. Goodman's probably the most underused piece of this whole puzzle and that he's one of the most talented comedic actors living and is cast in a role that doesn't really mean anything or doesn't really do anything. All the work is spent setting up the trick ending for the audience in a character that we're not actually invested in at all. Is he just a CIA badass or is he a real person? So there's a potential to allow a relationship to develop between Charlize Theron and John Goodman, to actually develop that relationship rather than just using these two characters to deliver plot, rather than just using the emotional relationship to deliver plot. What happens in Atomic Blonde is that Charlize Theron's character doesn't actually change. She goes through this whole movie and basically remains exactly who she is. She doesn't develop any real relationships with anybody. And the one that might be real isn't allowed enough room to breathe inside of all that action. 
for us to actually believe it's real, for us to actually believe it's anything other than manipulation. So you have a character who doesn't care about anybody, who's manipulating everybody, who's playing a game with everybody. And of course, there's a little bit of the usual suspects in that she's playing a game with the audience and with the people she's reporting it to as well. So rather than the writer looking inside themselves and asking, what's the betrayal in me? What's this pain in me about? What is my need to lie? What is my need to deceive? What is that about in me? What's that about in this character? What is the joy of deception for this character? How do I tempt her out of the joy of deception and then bring her back to deception? How do I take a character who tells the truth and turn them into a deceiver or a deceiver and turn them into a character who tells the truth? How do I take her on a journey? What happens instead is that the character doesn't go on a journey at all. In fact, none of the characters get to go on a journey. Charlize Theron doesn't grow as a character, she doesn't build relationships, and she doesn't change. She starts off in a relationship with a spy she doesn't trust, David Percival, played by James McAvoy, and at the end, she doesn't trust him and he doesn't trust her. They start out and they don't trust each other, they end and they don't trust each other. She goes through an awesome sequence trying to get Spyglass, played by Eddie Marson, out of East Germany but she doesn't develop a real relationship with him. So even the success or failure of that mission is only about her own ego as a spy. It isn't about a relationship that develops between them. So it doesn't have any real emotional meaning. Her relationship with Sophia Butella is probably the closest to a real relationship, but that relationship is also convoluted. And her relationship with John Goodman turns out to be more complicated than we expected, but the actual relationship doesn't develop in front of our eyes. We don't get to see him as a character. We don't understand what he means to her. So there's no one that matters to her. There's no one she isn't willing to betray. And what that means is that her betrayal means nothing. The audience goes on a journey in relation to all the very complicated things that we're trying to figure out. But we aren't actually engaged in figuring them out. We don't actually care. We care about the action sequences because they're super fun. But we don't care for the character. We aren't rooting for her because we don't even know what she's doing. And we aren't really that surprised when we find out who she is because not only did we see it coming, but also we were never invested in any other belief about who she might have been because she hasn't had to change or lose or choose in order to become who she is. She's simply stayed static, just like every other character in the piece. And I want to contrast this with the other movies that are built this way, the other movies upon which its structure is actually built. For example, let's look at True Detective. In True Detective, what we're watching is Matthew McConaughey go on a huge journey of change. We're watching Matthew McConaughey, before our eyes, lose his belief in people, lose his belief in himself. We're watching the pressure between him and the Woody Harrelson character. We're watching it develop, and we're watching the toll that trying to solve this crime takes on these two men. The real structure of True Detective is not solving the case. It's never solving the case. The real structure of True Detective is the relationship between two very different men who come to care about each other. If we look at The Usual Suspects, despite its tremendous trick ending, The Usual Suspects isn't about just tricking the audience. If you take the trick ending out, you still have a movie that's worth watching. You have a story of a main character who keeps trying to get out but keeps getting pulled back in. 
In other words, you have a better version of the Godfather three. And even the character of Kaiser Soze, the character of verbal played by Kevin Spacey, he goes on a journey as well. He goes on a journey, even though it's a pretend one where he has to mourn the loss of a fake friendship, where he has to realize that the man he thought was his friend may have manipulated him all along. Why me? I'm weak. I'm a cripple, he says to Detective Kujan after realizing that his friend has betrayed him, or at least what seems like realizing his friend has betrayed him. Because you're weak, because you're a cripple, Kujan responds. And verbal cries. So you have this journey of a guy trying to get out who keeps getting pulled back in. You've got choices that drive him back to where he doesn't want to go. You have the story of Verbal going on a journey to learn that his friend isn't really his friend. You have the story of Detective Kujan who goes on a journey of thinking he's the man in control and realizing he's been outwitted. The structure of the usual suspects doesn't just exist for the audience. It doesn't just exist in complications. The story of that movie exists for the characters. It's built around the characters' change in relation to the theme of betrayal. If we look at the structure of Kill Bill, Kill Bill is a movie about revenge, and we care about Uma Thurman's character in Kill Bill because we care about her desire for revenge. We understand what she wants because we felt that want ourselves, because it grows organically out of real human feelings in Quentin Tarantino, feelings that we can relate to, whether or not we agree with her actions. In fact, if you look at Tarantino's oeuvre, nearly everything he has written is about revenge and the joy of revenge. Whereas Atomic Blonde, if it does come from inside of Kurt Johnstad, then it's been twisted around these commercial goals to such an extent that the piece of him that started it no longer seems present, that the human side has been lost. Even a much more complicated film like Chinatown. If you've watched Chinatown, you probably still don't know what the hell happened in Chinatown. So we can all agree it's a pretty complicated movie. But here's what you do know. You do know that Jack Nicholson at the very beginning of the movie, you do know that he's a guy who doesn't want to get involved. He's a guy who doesn't want to get involved, and he's a guy who believes that people shouldn't get involved. He doesn't want to go back to Chinatown. In fact, in the very first scene, he tells a potential client, look, do you love your wife? In that case, trust me, you don't want to know. And then what happens is Jack Nicholson gets caught with his pants down, and suddenly he's in the position of the client, and he ignores his own advice. He wants to know. He wants to know what's going on with Faye Dunaway. He wants to know what's going on with water in California. He gets sucked into trusting someone and then mistrusting her. A relationship develops with Jack and Faye Dunaway, someone he cares about, someone that he comes to believe isn't who he thinks she is. It's that relationship that pulls us through all the film's myriad complications. That relationship that drives him back to the one place he was never going to go, Chinatown. Back to the position of not being able to protect someone that he loves. Back to the position of knowing how much mankind doesn't care about each other. So all these movies have one thing in common, which is whether the plot is incredibly convoluted like Chinatown or The Usual Suspects or incredibly simple like True Detective or Kill Bill. These movies aren't about the crime. These movies aren't about the complications. These movies are about the character journeys, the character relationships. If you want to write a great script, if you want to build a film that people are going to care about, it can never just be about the plot complications. It can't just be a game of chess. 
Because no matter how beautifully executed, we're going to feel that something is missing. It can't just be about a journey you take the audience on. It has to be a journey that you take yourself on, that you take your character on. Because here's the truth. Most of us will never be spies. Most of us will never chase a list of double agents. In fact, most of us probably don't even believe that such a list actually exists. So probably most of us don't even fully accept the premise of Atomic Blonde. Most of us will never have to betray the betrayer or deceive the deceiver in a complicated spy fiction story. But every single one of us has relationships, and it's those relationships, those hot relationships, that make us care about the characters. And yes, there are other things that can make a movie compelling, like beautiful images and great fight sequences. But it's those relationships that suck us into the movie and hypnotize us and make us cry for characters that we know don't exist. It's those relationships that make us root for characters that we know don't exist, that make our hearts pound for characters we know don't exist. It's those human elements that make these characters feel real. And for all the value wrung out of each location in the action sequences, the film also fails to fully capture the value of its location in time. Because despite the fact that it's set in the 80s, it has none of that 80s throwback fun that we'd expect in a film like this, that the trailer promises us. And throwback 80s fun doesn't need to mean that it's a silly movie. If you watched Stranger Things, then you know you can have 80s fun in a really dark context. But in this film, we don't get the feeling of the 80s. We don't get the feeling of a spy thriller that matters. We don't get a feeling about the politics. In fact, the very first thing that the movie says is about the Berlin Wall falling. But that isn't this story. What we get is attitude, but we don't get character. What we get is attitude, but we don't get emotion. What we get is craft, but we don't get the story. What we get is plot, but we don't get the structure. So what can you take from Atomic Blonde? You can take a couple of things. Atomic Blonde succeeds because of great craft. It succeeds because of all the brilliantly crafted action scenes, and it succeeds because of brilliantly shot scenes, and it succeeds because of brilliant actors. But structurally, Atomic Blonde suffers from convoluted craft. It suffers from trying to mash up other ideas, trying to mash up elements. Like, let's take the 80s, the Cold War, spy thriller, Quentin Tarantino, True Detective, Chinatown, the usual suspects. Let's mix them all together, all these elements, and create a plot for the audience. Rather than saying, let's take a character that we care about and put her in a world that we care about. Let's take her on a journey that's going to change her forever inside of a world that matters to her. Let's explore the theme not as something the characters talk about, but as something that shapes their journeys structurally. Not a journey just of the audience, but of the characters themselves. In every movie, there are two levels of structure. There is primary structure and there's secondary structure. Primary structure is the structure that the character experiences as they experience the story of the movie. It's the way that they change, the way that they grow. And secondary structure is the way that the audience experiences the story of the film. Atomic Blonde suffers on both levels. On secondary structure, it suffers because there are so many elements, so many 4DX bells and whistles pulled from so many other influencing movies that the movie fails to focus in on that one thing that the audience can actually care about, that one thing that the audience can actually follow. It's three quarters of the way through the movie and we're still trying to figure out who Satchel is supposed to be. Who Satchel, the spy that everyone is chasing, is supposed to be? Is it one of the characters we've met? Or is it a secret person that we haven't met yet? 
We're still trying to distinguish between Satchel and Spyglass, not just because they both have names that sound similar, but also what's the difference between the two of them? And Percival, is he Satchel? We're still trying to figure out the basics of what the character actually wants as she navigates all these smoke and mirrors. And then we have the primary structure, the emotional structure. And the truth is, if your craft isn't great and your secondary structure isn't perfect and you don't have a big surprise ending and you simply just tell a simple story well told, the audience is going to go on a much better journey than if you have the most complicated secondary structure ever. The primary structure of this movie is the thing that is missing most, and that's just plain and simple. What is the journey of the writer? What do we care about about this character? What does she really want? How is she changing in relation to that want? And if you just pursue that one thing, you will end up with a movie that isn't only a hundred times more fun, but it's also a hundred times more meaningful than Atomic Blonde. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. Again, we make this podcast available totally free and with no outside advertising. So if it was helpful for you, please help us reach our goal of 10,000 listeners by subscribing to us on iTunes and writing us a review. It really does make a big difference in keeping this podcast free for everyone. You can find a link to do so at writeyourscreenplay.com slash podcast. For a complete transcript of this podcast or to learn more about studying with me or my faculty in New York City, live online, on one of our international retreats, or as part of our one-on-one ProTrack mentorship program, you can learn more on our website, writeyourscreenplay.com. <laughs>